early in the pandemic, I think the the focus was really like, how do we make sure that as society like figures out, how, you know, or as people push for you know elites and, and established institutions to respond in the ways that they should, how do we make sure that incarcerated people are not excluded? Right. You know, I was hoping in the early days of the of the pandemic that we would get a public health approach to prison, and right. instead we got a prison approach to public health. Welcome to the Death Panel. To support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, like our interview with Nate Holdren, author of Injury Impoverished, which was unlocked last week, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So I am thrilled to welcome our guest today, Dan Berger, who is an interdisciplinary historian focusing on critical race theory, 20th century social movements, and critical prison studies, as well as a coordinator of the Washington Prison History Project. Dan, it is so nice to have you. Welcome to the Death Panel. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to be here. So many have recently declared that they have decided to be, quote, done with COVID. But that is a choice that is not afforded to many people. And since COVID is bad everywhere right now, it means that COVID is especially bad in prisons, jails, and other congregate institutional settings. So Dan is joining us today for a COVID vibe check on carcerality, because it's overdue that we have a conversation checking in with a sort of bird's eye overview of the politics that are going on with COVID infections, mitigation, and people who are incarcerated. So I want us to start not by talking about the current landscape so much, but by looking back to a policy demand that came into play very early on in the pandemic, which, Dan, you were very vocal about. This was the idea to free incarcerated people, not just because of political, moral, social, and economic reasons, but to free people for the purposes of public health. So, Dan, you know, as I said, you were one of the many people calling for this strategy really early on, as you phrased in a March 25th, 2020 research brief, quote, everything about incarceration runs counter to public health. Can you talk a little bit about your your background here and how that really brought you to make this demand so early on into COVID? Sure. Thanks for that. I, I, so I've been doing different kinds of activism and work in solidarity with incarcerated people. And really, uh, I think the correct way for me is I've been learning from incarcerated people first since I was in high school. And that was a one kind of early entry point into activism for me and ultimately led me to to go to grad school. Um, and I was sort of engaged in a lot of learning uh, with and from incarcerated people that also led me to think about the history of incarceration itself. Um, and I think now people, to the extent people know who I am, it's often like that I'm a prison guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually... To me, like I, I got in, in, interested in studying incarceration and understanding incarceration, both because of that personal connection, but also because I viewed myself and still view myself as a social movement historian. And I think there's no way mm-hmm. to tell or understand the history of social movements, particularly in this country, um, without understanding and reckoning with the carceral state. Mm. And 
Uh, and so, you know, that, that's been a sort of formative focus of my work. And I've, I've written a couple of books and, and a number of articles about incarcerated people, the activism of incarcerated people, you know, particularly in the civil rights and black power era on into the present. And so I was by no means someone who initiated that call about right. free, freeing people, free them all for public health. But, you know, I, I live in Seattle, which was obviously where the first cases in the U.S. were in the mm-hmm. Seattle area. Um, first cases of COVID were were discovered. And so I felt like we had kind of like a one week head start on <laughs> like <laughs> pandemic response. And just as a parent of of a young kid, like I could, I just still right now, like can remember the feeling of like the world closing in, like in, in early March, well, in February into early March, um, as like things started to close and just that sense of like dread at, at a terrifying unknown that we were entering. And it was clear immediately from my own sense of dread about what was happening, like with a like stable job that could move online, like with, you know, without loss of income, you know, in a house where I could go outside if I wanted to. And um, like, just think about like how panicked I was despite and amidst relative, you know, a lot of, a lot of economic stability. And I thought immediately about incarcerated people who obviously are denied all, all of those simple pleasures that I mentioned and for whom social distancing, one of the main guidance of the early days of the pandemic, it was impossible. Right. Mm-hmm. There's an artist, Mona Chalabi, my apologies if, if I'm mispronouncing her last name, but who did a graphic for um, the prison policy initiative about, about social distancing, right? Where she did the graphic of like a, a person in a circle and said like, this is the recommended social distancing guidelines. And then she did, here's the space available in nursing home. And you see two people in circles that are overlapping. And then here's the space on a cruise ship. And you see two people in circles that are overlapping closer. And then here's here's prison. And you see two people that are overlapping, like almost touching. Right. There's just not the physical infrastructure to handle a pandemic. And in fact, mm-hmm. there's a physical infrastructure to accelerate a pandemic inside of prison. And so it was just clear immediately and in a terrifying way like that this was going to the prisons and jails and detention centers were going to be a, a major vector for disease and that it could only come into prison from the outside <laughs> and as prisons closed closed off visiting closed off programming right the only people coming in from the outside were guards mm-hmm. and so it was just like the most terrifying situation, which is a move to lockdown, cutting off from in-person contact with everyone but guards. And and that's it. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I was uh, certainly felt a lot of urgency to join a large number of comrades around the country who were pushing this idea that that decarceration was urgently necessary feels like too polite a word to say. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, like there was the, that without decarceration, we were courting mass death, inviting mass death. And I just want to pause for a second to say, you know, I, before I moved to Washington, I was, lived in Philadelphia for about a decade. And my last couple of years there was part of starting a group called Decarcerate PA. Um, like the strategy of decarceration is not one that emerged with the pandemic. There right. have been a number of efforts for many years both focusing on individual cases, uh, but also focusing on state prison systems writ large about 
how to close prisons and how to get people out. And obviously this was, you know, a, a strategy based in a politics that understood the U.S. prison system as fundamentally and uh, irredeemably violent, racist, ableist, and oppressive. But I think what the pandemic created, or the, the conditions of the pandemic created a moment where these ideas that abolitionists and other anti-prison activists have been saying for a long time that we have too many people in prison and the way to solve that is not with more prisons, but with fewer prisoners. Right. And, and it created just the, the context in which to make a very clear, very immediate claim that like, this is killing us. <laughs> and it was killing us before February and March, 2020, but it's really going to, to be an accelerant uh, of death and devastation. Right. Because I mean, one, one thing that I think you and I have talked about a lot just between the two of us is just the, the fact that the sort of decision about what to do in terms of like how to handle the pandemic in for people who were incarcerated was to just completely like close off contact to the outside so that all that became sort of the in and out of jail and prison facilities became the guards, right? Which obviously, as we've seen, you know, throughout this pandemic, like police unions and correctional unions are, um, you know, some of where a lot of the like institutional opposition to vaccine mandates come from. Yep. So, it, you know, it's this kind of like, you're already working with trying to free people from a situation that is a terrible place to go if you want to try and be a healthy person, right? Like it is it is very difficult to live uh, in the conditions of prison and not end up uh, sicker or disabled as a result, right? Can you talk about like what some of the conditions are that are in prison that we're already pushing, um, you know, these moves towards like releasing in particular, like elderly prisoners or people who um, were there for like decades on non nonviolent offenses and are now, for example, like in their 60s, 70s, people who are particularly high risk yeah. for COVID. Yeah. So I'm trying to think of how to summarize my my history of mass incarceration class in, uh, <laughs> <laughs> in a couple of minutes. But, um, but I, you know, I think, as many listeners probably know, right, the U.S. has the largest prison, prison population in the world. Um, there's more than 2.1, and I think more than, at this point, more than 2.2 million people who are incarcerated in jails, prisons, and detention centers. And that the U.S. went on the biggest prison building boom in world history in the 1980s and 90s, um, sparked by the growing rise in the prison population uh, beginning in the early 1970s. So, you know, when, when you look at like someone like Angela Davis and George Jackson, people that I've written a lot about, George Jackson was a radical prisoner, member of the Black Panther Party, and famous author who was killed in San Quentin prison in 1971. Um, and Angela Davis is, remains, you know, a, a leading theorist and, of abolition um, and was briefly a, a political prisoner herself in the early 70s. When they were writing in the early 70s, they were talking about the prison system as a sign of incipient fascism. Mm -hmm. right. And when they were writing that, uh, th those essays, there were about 200,000 people in prison. So in a span of you know, less than uh, half a century, right? Because really in the span mm -hmm. of about 30 years, um, the US went from 200,000 people in prison to 2 million people in prison. And so there are lots of ways that that happened. But one of the ways that that happened was by enhancing sentences. 
So right, lengthening sentences um, mm -hmm. for, for people who, who are incarcerated and removing or diminishing the opportunities for parole. So both of those, right, um, like giving longer sentences and making it harder for people to get out created this sort of logjam um, that, that meant that the incarcerated population grew significantly older, relatively quicker, Right? right. And the majority of people who are incarcerated are incarcerated as young people. Right. Mm -hmm. So the vast majority get incarcerated between 18 and 25. Pe people are going to prison as young people, but they're staying there much longer. Mm -hmm. So so that's one, one, one issue. And um, the other issue is the cultural and political and social and economic uh, expectations of who's in prison are such that it's people who are undeserving of freedom, which means they're undeserving of personhood, which, which is borne out by a terrible healthcare system, right? a sort of notoriously terrible healthcare system. So you have all kinds of reports of you know, people having very serious ailments from you know, appendicitis to, to cancer being treated with you know, a couple of Tylenol. Mm -hmm. um, right. And, and there, those are extreme, which is not to say rare uh, cases, but it's just a daily aspect of denying people health uh, and, and of viewing people's concerns about their health with suspicion, right? That, mm -hmm. that people are just trying to get, get over on, on the state or something like that. So I knew someone who, you know, had a tooth infection and went to the dentist and they pulled the wrong tooth. So someone who's incarcerated, right? Um, and by the time they took him to the dentist, they, they pulled the wrong tooth. And he was already older when that happens, which, you know, losing your teeth at any point, but particularly when you're older is, is a concern. Um, right. right. And so then he lost two teeth. Um, so it's just like, even the basic stuff, like that was not life-threatening is still awful. Uh, and, then, and then the last point that I'll say for now is, uh, is the, the food, both quality and quantity, is terrible. Um, very high salt, very high sugar, uh, very low on fresh nutrients, on fresh fruit, fresh vegetables. So all of, all of that <laughs> right, um, causes high stress and creates the conditions for a number of comorbidities uh, that become, you know, again, in, in the context of the pandemic, that, that really become accelerants of death and disability. And it becomes a further way of like devaluing the death of people who are already so stigmatized. And exactly. Like, yeah. So right. it's like, oh, you know, oh, there are all these people dying in prison, but like, oh, they had comorbidities. So, you know, like ignoring it's, the fact that obviously like prison is contributing to that significantly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it occurs to me that the, situation with COVID in prisons is symptomatic of broader ways in which the working class is disorganized. I mean, prisons are an amazing yep. way of disorganizing the working class um, yep. and, and dividing them and separating them and literally locking them up. But it's it also seems symptomatic that when we talk about deaths from COVID, if there's any focus on specificity beyond sort of the geographic location, mm -hmm. um, it tends to be in terms of uh, generically stated comorbidities, uh, <laughs> deaths pulled from the future that we talk about far less, uh, often, I think we, and we've noted this from the beginning is, is actually what the context, uh, is in which people, um, die. 
and yep. uh, what you know how we uh, how we house people and 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 where they are and and even where they work. Uh, data about that is far you know and even in states like Wisconsin, literally suppressed yep. uh, workplace uh, data about COVID deaths. So I'm wondering, and and so you know at the beginning of the pandemic, one of the things that we pretty early on there was this study about Cook County Jail and just the sheer volume of COVID cases that just emerged from Cook County Jail, like in the state of Illinois, like a huge percentage of them. So I'm wondering if you could, you know, sort of talk about the way that this, this issue is like, we have, you know, there are many different ways of like, as they used to say in 2020, bending the curve. Um, <laughs> and, you know, but, but some of them are were sort of like on the table, others were off. I'm, I'm wondering if you could yep. talk about how, you know, being part of this movement, the issue of the fact that like we just have institutions in society that are that consign people to a fate of early death that's right and disease that are um, like perfectly constructed as pandemic tinder boxes right. yeah they're calibrated <laughs> yeah. to do it yeah they're tinder boxes especially so, in a viral pandemic not to mention yes. all the other pandemics that have been a problem right. within the walls of prison right. exactly <laughs> so you know i'm just like curious how it's something that like, I think was maybe obvious to, to us, but I think prison deaths and prison infections from COVID is barely mentioned. You read it in the kind of publication like ProPublica, not it's nowhere near the top of any sort of um, sort of media agenda. So like, how, how did you guys or uh, how, how do people in the in the abolition uh, movement begin sort of talking about this and sort of bring this try, trying to make this. Um, an issue for, for sort of more immediate, urgent action. Yeah, great question. And there's a few few different things I, I want to say in response. One about you were mentioning Cook County Jail, and I think there was you know rightly and, and urgently a lot of attention to both Cook County Jail and Rikers mm-hmm. Island Jail early in the pandemic, and and in some ways um, to the extent to the extent carceral institutions come up, like those two continue to be uh, continue to come up because they are such massive jails and have been such massive vectors of disease. Yeah. Um, and so it's worth just acknowledging the difference between prisons and jails for a second yeah. um, in case folks aren't thinking about that. Um, because I was talking a lot about prisons in terms of people being, uh, you know, being senior citizens and spending, you know, right. 50, 60, 500 years in prison, um, having these kind of lengthy sentences. And, and that's that's prison, right? Prison is is about stasis that you're you're stuck in in that place for however many years, even if it's five years, right? So you're you're stuck. You may be transferred between prisons, but you're still stuck. Jails are much more about churn, right? That people mm-hmm. move in and out of jail, um, and jails are largely for people who have not yet been convicted, and or they've been sentenced to to short sentences, right? Um, so that's how you end up in jail. And so jail has everything to do with um, who who is most like precarious in society, like who who is most exposed to the violence of law enforcement, um, and who's who's granted the least benefit of the doubt in in any of those encounters. And so so precisely because places like Cook County Jail and Rikers are so massive, you know, coming are, are just the kind of vanguard sites where racist urban inequality manifest, but people are still moving in and out. They became just profound and, and well, and, and they're more crowded than prisons because the idea is people are here for a short time. And so there's, you know, they're, they're crowded in cells together. Like there's, there's even less attention to programming and things like that. 
Um, and so they just became such profound disease transmission tinderboxes, as Zardy was saying, that that was really shocking. Not surprising if you, if right. you think about jails or public health or both or their intersection, um, but still quite shocking, right? I don't, I don't have it in front of me, but by late March or April, there were, you know, very high percentages of particularly Cook County Jail and Rikers were, were testing positive for COVID. And for a while, you know, the New York Times was tracking like COVID clusters and COVID outbreaks, like the, the what, what were the sites of concentrated COVID outbreaks. Mm-hmm. And as late as August of 2020, it was something like 85% of the top 50 places were jails, prisons, or detention centers. Yeah. Right. And the remaining were meatpacking plants. <laughs> um, Which is, basically. again, you know, conditions of like affected environment, right? Because in the exactly. meatpacking plant, you also have people like really close together. You have the like the temperature turn low. You have people who are like working for very, very low wages. This is like the same kind of situation where if you have people in these settings that are unsafe, right? And you either hold them for a long time with no way to protect themselves, no way to get out and like no recourse there. Right. And no space. That's a problem. Right. But as we like put people into these scenarios in the like other forms that they exist. Right. Because like carcerality is this big spectrum of like beautiful, different iterations of horrible shit. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And and it's like you you put people in this powder keg of infection, right? It's basically a space that if you were trying to design a space to get people infected with a respiratory disease, it would be the perfect space, right? right. You don't have a lot of ventilation. There's not a lot of personal room. Yep. People don't have access to personal private space. They don't have access to places to really sleep and rest. They are stressed. They have like no personal hygiene tools given to them, right? This is, this is really like you're asking for disease to spread in these circumstances. Um, it's a like proactive form of like biological punishment, right? This deprivation. And what yep. that does is we cycle people in and out because we have this propensity for liking to, you know, round people up, catch them for whatever reason and put them in jail, right? For pretrial detention to hold people until they're even judged guilty or not. When people are released back into the community for whatever reason, right? They like bring whatever they've been exposed to home, right? If they've been exposed recently. And so it's become this sort of great avenue of watching the carceral state's impact sort of flow from jails, which is something that like we all know happens, but is harder to see when it doesn't come connected to the sort of epidemiological trace of how these infections like move from these facilities into like the broader, um, you know, free world so to speak. Exactly. And we've had, like, this is not the first rodeo with this kind of thing. Like, I know you had, you all had Stephen Thrasher on recently. Like, there's a lot of research about jails and prisons being vectors for the spread of HIV, in, particularly in, in the 80s and 90s. Um, there, there's other histories of jails and prisons spreading tuberculosis. Um, and, and in fact, that's come back <laughs> right. recently mm-hmm. in, in Washington. Um, there's a TB outbreak at, at a prison as well as a COVID outbreak. And, and everything you were just saying be about, about, you know, you couldn't design a more perfect incubator of, you know, transmissible respiratory virus. Just to add one more point to it is that that the prison systems really throughout the pandemic were still transferring people between right. institutions yeah. and the, you know, any as bad as the, the test and trace kinds of dynamics have been on the outside. I mean, just right. non-existent inside. 
there, there was one other thing I want to say, which is I think early in the pandemic, I think the the focus was really uh, uh, for me anyway was sort of like how do we make sure that as society like figures out how, you know or as people push for you know elites and, and established institutions to respond in the ways that they should, how do we make sure that incarcerated people are not excluded? Right, because that that's usually like has been at least one of the work of abolitionists. Right, is that there's all there's you know there's work around Medicare for all, there's work around voting rights, there's work around fill in the blank, and usually people don't think about incarcerated, detained, and confined people. Mm-hmm. Right. So like we have voting rights, but like well not not if you're in prison, not obviously. Really. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, so there are all these kinds of ways that even people like some people on the left and certainly within the the sort of mush of mainstream sort of political parties um, that people just accept these sort of carceral exclusions. And so I, I think that strategy early on was like making sure that incarcerated people were included in any kind of reasonable public health approach that would happen. So that meant, you know, incarcerated people needed to be given masks. They needed to be given hand sanitizer, um, like basic things that were such the like, messaging of how to how to keep yourself safe in the pandemic that were major fights and i think some of the ways that those fights happened were through protests and demonstrations and petitions on the outside i think a lot of how it happened was lots of people who are in prison went on strike they tore up their units they mm-hmm. <laughs> engaged in different kinds of um of, of protest and uprising inside of prison um and then there was a a, a third approach, um, which were lawsuits. And there were a number of lawsuits uh, that happened, including one here in Washington that, um, you know, was virtual because the courts were virtual. And that the, the attorney from Columbia Legal Services who brought the case on behalf of people incarcerated in Washington, demanding decarceration, said, like in his opening statement, was like, the reason for this case is the reason why we are meeting virtually. Right. <laughs> like a very clear, very simple point. Um, and, and they lost. Right? Um, and, and part of why it lost, it was close. Uh, you know, it was the state Supreme Court, and I forget how many justices are on it, but it was like three to two. Um, you know, it was, it was one, one vote difference, but still uh, they lost. And part of why they lost is that the state's perspective was, well, to, to honor this request would mean releasing most people in prison. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so it just, like, it was very clear. Makes you think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, and, and this has been what has been the most, like, just emotionally devastating part of it, even though it's not surprising. But just, ha- like, they just wanted to, to defend the status quo like they just like it wasn't a it wasn't a we can keep people safe this way and that way it was like yeah like to do that would mean like this whole system is wrong right like and it's not about <laughs> non-violent offenders or violent offenders like it's it's just this thing is wrong like and, right. and it's, it's unsustainable and it's un- unsustainably wrong <laughs> it's like catastrophically wrong and and that was the argument to to keep so many people locked up and it and it won, right? I mean, I think, you know, lots of states engaged in some very targeted, small-scale 
releases, but they were targeted and small scale. And even right. and even then, it was defending the the cruelest aspects of the system. So in Washington, um, with, you know, I'm using just because I lived here and, and live here and paid close attention to these things. And it's not any more or less shocking than anywhere else. In some cases, less shocking than other states. But in Washington, when the state did release a couple hundred people, uh, you know, it. it the governor issued a resolution with the like, you know, whereas, whereas, therefore. So it was whereas COVID-19 particularly affects people who are older, whereas it affects people who are close together, whereas it affects people who are have all these comorbidities. Right. Therefore, we are releasing people, we are releasing this group of people who are within, you know, I forget, three months of release oh and who, were, who were convicted of nonviolent crimes. And, and we're going to own a small <laughs> business and operate in a disadvantaged community and receive a Pell Grant. Yes, exactly. 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 So it's like, they have even, to have never applied for welfare before they went into prison. <laughs> it's like even on your own stupid, like your own understanding of of the dangers this disease poses like you're not you're not meeting that because you're because the prison population has been so punitive to target people who you know i've been in events in the washington prison system where like they they ask like everyone who's over 65 to stand up and you see this like group of you know 10 15 men like on dialysis like in wheelchairs on walkers like it's just devastating and like and those are people who are not within three months of release and do not have not we're not convicted of a nonviolent offense and so so from the state's perspective like forget about it mm-hmm. it's just very uh very bleak <laughs> but 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 surprisingly open like there wasn't a safety argument it was a right. it was a bit to release people would would call into question the, the system itself. Right. I mean, I think that's that's tremendously telling, right? Because you have the situation where even in their even in their acknowledgement like of, okay, whereas like COVID is a threat to older people, they're still saying, you know, we have to make these sort of car- categorical slices of only releasing, you know, the most uh, unimpeachable nonviolent offenders. And the sort of frame of like you know, what's called the quote, non, non, nons, right? The people that um, are the most sympathetic cases, right? Like that's, that's sort of been where any relief has been targeted at all that actually came through, correct? Yep. Yeah. I mean, there, there have been some, uh, some exceptions to that, um, but, but in terms of any sort of collective relief, that is absolutely correct. That is absolutely right. So for people who might not know, what is, what is a non, non, non? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is uh, what the political scientist Marie Gottschalk uh, has termed the kind of dominant framework of prison reform in the last decade or so, which is that it targets the nonviolent, non-serious, non-sexual offenses. So that the idea of who who is available to be to benefit from any kind of quote unquote prison reform needs to meet those categories. And it is the sort of lowest common denominator response of what Republicans and Democrats will agree, you know, constitutes an excess in the in the carceral system. And there are many problems with this, <laughs> um, <laughs> but among them is that you you could release everyone who meets that non 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 criteria tomorrow, and the U.S. still has the biggest, most punitive prison system in the world. Right. Um, like there are lots of people who are in prison who were who were convicted of a violent offense, 
in some cases, no harm may have happened, right? <laughs> it could be gun possession, it could whatever. Like there are lots of things that might come, might be some, you know, uh, prosecuted as some form of violence, possession of violence occurred. But uh, but to be frank, in the vast majority, some violence occurred. Like some harm happened, and that doesn't mean people should be allowed to to be just sacrificed to a right. pandemic. It doesn't mean that they also like deserve to be exposed with no protections, right? Exactly. Right. I mean, I, you know, I, I would argue it doesn't mean that they deserve to be in prison. Exactly. <laughs> I think there, there, are, there are other forms of uh, of responding to harm, and, and I think a lot of abolitionists have been really focused on that for for a long time. Um, and, and I think, I mean, just you know, my earlier point about like making sure that incarcerated people were included in any kind of public health. Like this, I think has been the work of abolitionists, right? That like, we can't carve out this, like some people are undeserving of healthcare or uh, economic security because they are irredeemably bad. Like the reason why people engage in violence often is a result of economic and social deprivation. Right? Um, and so we need to understand things like Medicare for all and the Green New Deal and, and any kind of emancipatory framework as also a abolitionist or at least a decarceral framework, right? Mm-hmm. That like when, when, we, when we provide for everybody, people are not precarious, right? <laughs> and right. when people are not like uh, feeling like they are being sacrificed. The um, wonderful scholar and abolitionist Ruth Wilson Gilmore summarizes this by saying, where life is precious, life is precious. And what the carceral system is fundamentally premised on is right, where life is disposable, <laughs> life right. is disposable. Right. And that's right. right. I think the abolitionist demand has always been about yoking the kind of um, the world that we are building, uh, you know, with the sort of universal social goods and, you know, uh, as well as like, you know, anti-racist or disability justice, feminist and queer radical approaches with, with a, a reckoning or like that, that the carceral system is fundamentally incompatible with those things. I'm glad that you bring it back to this because I think this gets to something kind of fundamental about you know something that we talk about all the time on the show with regards to like vulnerability and how vulnerability is produced by these mm-hmm. systems specifically. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. we've obviously been talking uh, over the course of this conversation about the fact that carceral institutions and congregate facilities and and all of this stuff are specifically drivers of the pandemic or like create the perfect conditions also create these vulnerabilities. I think it's important to cite just a a couple of like uh, pull out a couple of really specific, I guess, data points on that or something. Mm -hmm. Um, Since everyone loves to say, I don't know, I'm just thinking about how pedants like David Leonhardt or something (laughs) operate on this register of like, oh, well, here's this like statistic about like a vulnerability index. Therefore, like children are invulnerable to COVID or or whatever. (laughs) Um, It says a lot about the role of prisons um, and and jails, the role of carceral settings in society that, for example, this is citing from uh, an Eric Reinhardt piece in Health Affairs that over the course of the pandemic, incarcerated people have faced um, 5.5 times higher risk of contracting COVID than those in the general U.S. population. And after adjusting for age, sex, um, and race or ethnicity, they have three times the COVID mortality rate. Um, I mean, Mm -hmm. you mentioned before even how, you know, centers of uh, greatest outbreak, things like um, I think as of September 2021, like 90 out of the top 100 highest traced outbreak settings were 
carceral institutions, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think this is important to highlight because, um, again, to kind of get back to this idea of sort of producing vulnerability, but also being the sort of like engine prolonging and exacerbating the pandemic itself. I think one of the reasons we wanted to have this conversation is I think that like even even us for all that we talk about how like, well, you know, obviously there are there's so many other things that we need to do in this country to actually combat the pandemic, like increasing, um, you know, layering more NPIs on top of things, doing things like paying people to stay home. Um, even those things also like can only go so far without prison abolition, because, yeah. you know, exactly. Even as people might want to think that like prisons and jails or or carceral settings of any kind or like these things that exist out of society or whatever that like people are totally cast out of society or something there is no such thing as like not living in a society if you will (laughs) especially Um, if you're being held captive well and i want to and i want to um right and if you're being held captive by that society and i think this what i mean by that is i think really um, well illustrated by just a couple of key things. One is that, for example, you know, you talked about the difference between prisons and jails, um, jails where people are sort of it's constructed so that people are basically, you know, churned in and out of them. Um, the the scale of that jail cycling, the scale of jail churn is pretty staggering. It's something like 55 yep. percent of the U.S. jail population turns over every week, which like um, yeah. that in and of itself are, could drive a, a viral respiratory pandemic. Right. right? If yeah. like, if we continue to treat people like in this way, like they're an Amazon package. Yeah. Yeah. Ten million. You know, I, I said t- two million people are incarcerated. That's on any given day. Yeah. And that's prison and jails. But but just looking at jails, 10 million people get in and out of jails in, in the U.S. every year. Exactly. Right. Um, and, and, you know, and that's also not to count all of the many people for whom this is like their site of employment, uh, yep. where it's, there's a population of at least like 400,000 people who work as guards and carceral institutions. Right. Um, who go home country. at the end of the day. Yeah, they go home at the end of the day. There's a profound amount of movement in and out of mm-hmm. these spaces that we like to think of as this just, just like, or that, you know, certain parts of society like to at least portray as this sort of like black box that people right, go like it's into. static or whatever. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and I think people like to think that if there's like scientific and policy consensus behind an idea or behind some sort of obvious vector of COVID transmission, right. That we would rise to the occasion and, and do something about it in theory, because the fact of the matter is like, it's pretty clear, you know, regardless of like what you think about whether someone deserves to be in prison, like, which like I disagree with like categorically, like you cannot have a COVID response without freeing people from sites of mass incarceration. You cannot actually mitigate the pandemic without also seeking to mitigate and address the needs of incarcerated people, right? And making those people like socially disposable doesn't make it go away, right? Like the fact that we are like condemning people to slow death and then depriving them of like further resources during like a plague. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, just just time and again, right? Everything about the pandemic response in this country has underscored, highlighted, bolded, italicized the idea that you can't pick and choose public health, right? Like it's for everybody or it doesn't work. And just like last week, I think, um, I saw some (laughs) some headline um, about, you know, Biden administrations are once again weighing whether to to vaccinate asylum seekers. Like just all of this like triangulation about deservingness and disposability is like literally killing us. Um, and the us certainly includes people who are incarcerated, includes asylum seekers, includes everyone. 
but even just from a, a self-interested like perspective, like if you're a, a terrible person, you still you still, <laughs> you still need not just want like you still need for incarcerated people and detained people to be safe. <laughs> Otherwise, it's nothing. Like there's right. no there's, you can't get away from it, right? I mean, I think the pandemic like started in urban areas and has you know has, has been more um there's all this attention first you know seattle then new york right the, of the density of these urban spaces and so it was further easier to sort of write off incarcerated people since uh, at least those in prison are mostly in rural areas rather than those in, in jail more in urban areas um, and now we see the pandemic like decimating rural areas because, of course, that's how, <laughs> like that, that, that's how uh, viruses work. Um, it's just very, you know, when the mantra of the Trump administration, the mantra of the resistance to the Trump administration, or the critique of the Trump administration on the pandemic was like, trust the science, trust the science. Um, and it was like, well, abolition is the science. <laughs> like, right. sorry, like, it doesn't work, or at least decarceration, like, that is the science. Uh, and the the attempt to just pick and choose was was and is so both maddening and and at such a high human cost. Trust the science. I mean, there was there was always a caveat. It was trust the science. <laughs> trust our that, science. Well, yeah. no, no, not even that. It was like trust the science in as much as it doesn't interfere with the institutions that we really don't want to that's change. Right. And that's not just yeah. prisons, obviously. Yep. Right. Uh, it's like, don't trust the science as, as long as that doesn't interfere with like middle-class professionals being able to go, yep. you know, like go and have fun and get their uh, <laughs> treats and, yep. and, and trust the science as long as it doesn't interfere with the productive capacity or the interest or even yep. just the perceived productive capacity is perceived by the u.s chamber of commerce right like yeah exactly yeah that's why you have to fill out a three-page form to get reimbursed for a covid test by your private health insurance (laughs) (laughs) but i mean and when it comes to prisons is trust trust the science but this population is somehow this is a you don't have to think about this population as somehow part of the overall problem that's yep. not, it's not even like in the numerator. Exactly. Well, and I think it's, it's important to actually to pause there and mention how I think one of the ways that this can work and one of the tactics for frankly, making it harder for people to make abolitionist claims is the fact that like, it is very difficult to even get a lot of basic information out of uh, these places. Like there's, a, I think the last best estimate for how many people had gotten uh, COVID-19 in carceral facilities was like 600,000 and it was from like April, 2021 or something. <laughs> right. I mean, on of, top co- of, that, of course we know that it's like, that's also like a definitely smaller number because access to testing is like non-existent right. as well. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and then, well, and then on top of that, we also don't know. I know that like some people listening I don't know, frankly, might not think about carceral settings a lot. But like, I think if you asked kind of a random uh, Biden voter, they might think like, oh, yeah, everyone who's in who's like uh, incarcerated has gotten like a vaccine and a booster dose offered to them. Right. Or something. And that's like we absolutely there's actually like a lot that we just do not know about that. I think there are also even um, there is, for example, recent, I think in December, a report from the prison policy initiative, a briefing from them that said uh, they have no evidence that over 40 states are providing booster doses to incarcerated people at all. Um, And just in general, and that 
you know, that's probably one of the, the biggest figures out of a much bigger report that is about how little we actually know about both incarcerated people being given vaccines and uh, vaccine uptake among people who work in carceral settings. Exactly. Yeah, I'm glad that you you mentioned the Prison Policy Initiative. I think that's one of the organizations that's been doing a lot of really great work and data collection. Um, I also want to call people's attention to the UCLA COVID Behind Bars data project, um, which has been another really impressive site for both gathering data. And then more recently, they've been doing a lot of data visualization that's helpful. But the fact that that it is incumbent on these, you know, like academic centers that form or on nonprofit organizations like Prison Policy Initiative to, to do that kind of data work really speaks to like a fundamental disregard for understanding carceral settings as sites of, of disease transmission. Um, and the thing about vaccines in prison, I mean, there was like a two month long debate about should should states and should the federal government prioritize people in yeah. prisons and jails yeah. right? and, the, and just like a very just grim times uh, <laughs> for like just again basic it's not even decency like just basic self preservation um but but the result of that particularly following after months and months of again the you know fights over access to ppe and hand sanitizer and so many other things in prison like there's also a lot of distrust among people who are in prison about should they get the vaccine because they didn't want to give it to us and now they do want to give it to us and what like should we trust this is it's okay and you know the the people that i know who are incarcerated all got vaccinated, but certainly reported a lot of people who who were hesitant at first, precisely because they had been so disregarded the whole time. <laughs> and it seemed like the state didn't want to give them the vaccine. So why the change of heart? You know, just all, all the ways right. that like when you when you treat people as disposable, like it doesn't endear them to, to you thinking that you have their best interest at heart at any right. moment. Yeah, I mean, um, if all we do is punish people, if you turn around and hand them a vaccine, they're not going to believe you that it's not punishment. Exactly. And and because the only way that prisons really have to do COVID mitigation is lockdown, right. people are really reluctant to get tested or really reluctant to report symptoms because they don't want to get thrown in solitary for being like <laughs> exposed to a disease uh, not of their own volition. Yeah. Um, and so just, again, everything about that institution is working against that, against public health. I mean, when we say lockdown too, I want to be very clear that we're not talking about like what, you know, people like talk about when they say, oh, you know, the U.S. is doing like a big lockdown. <laughs> draconian like, lockdown. Draconian, draconian lockdown. Draconian mitigation measures. I have to talk to the person at uh, Panera through a, through <laughs> a, a plexiglass. Yeah. That's yeah, right. no, that's that's like absolutely not what's been happening. It's been like depriving people of the opportunity to contact and see their loved ones, right? Like some prisons ended like video visits as part of yep. their lockdowns, which is just absurd, right? Yeah, huge yeah. side of uh, COVID transmission video calls. <laughs> right. That's right. why Zoom yeah. did so well over the course yeah. of the pandemic. <laughs> Lockdowns are involving, you know, taking people that are suspected to be sick and putting them all in one tiny room with exactly. each other. Right. That's you right. know, it's, it's these exactly. kind of like prison mitigation, like tools, right. Which 
or actually actual draconian lockdown strategies, right? That do more actually to make people unsafe because they're like not giving people medical care. There've been like reports of people who are sick with COVID. And then instead of being transferred to like a hospital unit, they're just transferred to a different prison Um, or they're released from jail. If they're like, they're sick, like people have just been like released back into the community so that it's like not on the police. And this is not like a fringe view. I mean, the it, I loved this statement from like October 24th, 2020. It's a policy statement from the American Public Health Association where mm-hmm. they say also, you know, in terms of like advancing real public health interventions to uh, COVID, we need to address like the carceral system and beyond like the sort of immediate locales of prisons and jails. We need to like limit police contact with the public. Yep. Right. Like and this right. is this is a huge component of it, too, because as we were talking about early in, in the episode, you know, a lot of guards are unvaccinated and they're bringing yep. things in asymptomatically and breakthrough infections do happen. And when you have a captive population where any mitigation is throwing people into a room together and not giving them access to like anything to get well or better or rest. Yep. Right. You're not going to have a very good time if you get sick while you're inside. Well, and as, exactly. and, and outside also, as we've said many times, because you brought up policing i mean especially the fact that clearly it is a a, you know a big thing that police officers have remained unmasked throughout the country as sort of like a political and ideological statement that entire institution obviously is has been over the course of the pandemic itself acting as this increased vector of spread and is like you know even more like obviously you know we've made i think no bones about saying on uh, death panel before that like obviously even outside of the context of the pandemic police are a public health threat but like <laughs> in a uh in in yet another way police <laughs> are a public health threat right. yeah and same you know in prison like they're supposed to wear masks but you know if, if you are incarcerated and you're not wearing your mask correctly you might get you might get put in lockdown, like you might get sent to the solitaire, you might like get in trouble in some way. But if you are a guard and not wearing your mask correctly or at all, like whatever. And that's just Tuesday. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) exactly. Call that Tuesday. Exactly. And you know, there's one other thing that I was thinking about since you all invited me on that. It it reminded me of, uh, well, I I said this to be, and I said this on Twitter, like, you know, I was hoping in the early days of the, um, the pandemic that we would get a public health approach to prison and right. instead we got a prison approach to public health. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it, it, but I was thinking about this episode was reminded that early in, in the pandemic prison systems, at least ones that I was paying close attention to because of, of where I knew people were actually doing better than usual in some amount of data transparency about the infection rates, right. um, like on their websites for listing things. And I have a very dear friend in New York who has since been released, thankfully, but but he was calling me to ask me to look at the website about how many infections oh, there were wow. at his oh, facility. Right, because why know, would you give it access to people inside, right? Exactly, like, they exactly. don't need that. Like They don't deserve that data. Yeah. <laughs> Oh and gosh. it was just, it, it actually took me a minute to realize what was happening because I was, you know, I had done other research for him in the past. Like I, it, you know, anything I could do to help, of course, blah, blah, blah. Like I just didn't realize how twisted it was. <laughs> so like I had better information about his, his context uh, than he did. And I think we see that, you know, again, like the attempts to limit testing, the attempts to like, not like not report what <laughs> results and all, like all of this stuff. I really think was was 
done in prisons and jails and detention centers first. Um, and just like the, the ability to like get away with mass disposability in a targeted sense with regards to people who are confined um, then becomes our, our larger public health strategy. And, you know, always there were dimensions of that, of course, throughout, but, but just in the like, the sort of collective giving up among elite institutions um, just it seems to flow from like, well, we already know, like we can, we can just disregard people. <laughs> so we might as well like do that for everybody. Right. No. And I, I think it's also important too, because like, while, you know, I'm like very adamant that I think you cannot like actually advocate for like a COVID strategy that works right without doing something to seriously address and like <laughs> decarcerate our prison system and our entire you know sort of shut down our entire like jail cycling practice right because these are not like things that are necessary for 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 health for safety per se and what they're doing actually is making us more unsafe but i thought that that example of like the court ruling from early on um that said basically you know we can't release people because then we'd have to admit that mass incarceration is wrong and we can't do that so you know it's like these are the kinds of things it's like letting people go has become like a lost npi it's become this sort of (laughs) forgotten npi that i i would love to see folks advocating for more now because you know, Dan, you sent me this great uh, study that came out. It's a preprint. The COVID-19 pandemic amplified longstanding racial disparities in the United States criminal justice system. And the study was looking at, you know, the releases that did happen, because as we've talked about, some releases did happen from long term, you know, prison confinement scenarios. But in the releases that did happen in response to COVID, like these disproportionately did not benefit people of color. Um, And the study found that, quote, during the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic, the number of incarcerated people in the United States decreased by at least 16 percent, the largest, fastest reduction in prison population in American history. But as I say, there was this distinct statistical bias in the data regarding who was actually released. So they write, quote, using an original data set curated from public sources on prison demographics across all 50 states and the District of Columbia, We show that incarcerated white people benefited disproportionately from this decrease in the U.S. prison population, and the fraction of incarcerated Black and Latino people sharply increased. This pattern deviates from a decade-long trend before 2020 and the onset of COVID-19, during which the proportion of incarcerated Black people was declining. So, you know, as we're seeing um, even these sort of targeted interventions because of our limited imaginary of, like, who we can even allow to be released if we're not like willing to publicly admit that mass incarceration is a fucking failure. Also, I just want to say exactly. the study that you're talking about, uh, the the figure that it puts with that statement that you're reading is pretty dramatic because it shows this basically, you know, over time, the percentage of incarcerated people who are black dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping. And then just suddenly as the pandemic hits, there is a dramatic spike up. And I do want to say, you know, it's not I actually maybe I'll put that uh, study in the hosted in the uh, death panel server because it's interesting to look at. It's not quite just as simple as who was released. It's also about 
things like um, because so much of the process with the court systems stalled in different uh, states. And obviously, you know, every state had a different uh, approach to this um, yeah. because in our lovely federal system, there's right. Like <laughs> right. a high amount of variability around all of these things. But in some states, right. they look at a couple of case studies, for example, they do have they do highlight a couple of states like Arkansas, for example, where disproportionately when they did um, allow people to be released early. It was disproportionately white people who did get released relative yeah. to the overall percentage of white people in the in like incarcerated in Arkansas itself. And so the yep. specific number on that is 72% of uh, those who were incarcerated um, who were eligible for release were white. Uh, that's of a overall like 57% of the prison population was white. So it's like, yep. it's pretty staggering. It's clearly not representative <laughs> simply of, uh, you know, who's in the prison system. Yeah. It's biased. Exactly. Who's in there. It's biased. Who's staying in there. Right. And you know, uh, that was one of the, the most depressing things about the article. The other most depressing thing about it to me was that, most of the decrease owed more to the backlog of the court system shutting down yeah. than it did to actual decarceration, right? So, like, the, um, so it, like we we had a decrease because the you know in part because some people were let go, but in part because the expected growth of the <laughs> of like normal functioning incarceration in the U.S. slowed due, due to the court systems moving right. virtual yeah. and closing for and and lo and behold like we've seen the prison systems the, the numbers of people incarcerated in the last year like rise um both at, at federal levels and and at local levels it's just very uh, <laughs> it's just very grim and um, yeah. you know it thinks about it reminds me of what you know, Phil, you were saying earlier about the ways that, you know, prison system is one of a larger carceral system is like serves to, to disorganize, you know, particularly those who are already disorganized and, and more precarious by certainly with regards to class, but, but also equally race. And, you know, I, we had to fight so much to like get to make sure that incarcerated people were eligible for vaccines that like yeah. the, the attention to like the decarceration went by the wayside right like we had to fight, fight so much for like to get biden to like not re-incarcerate the federal prisoners who were released to home confinement right. under trump to not send them back to prison when the quote-unquote emergency ended that we lost sight of like well why are they on home confinement like just like, let, let them go um, and let more people go and it's not that there aren't still people making those demands like there absolutely are but i think the kind of you know e attention economy to to the uh danger the carceral systems pose and to the demands right like you know there were people who were saying like vaccinate and release like give people the shot when <laughs> and then let them go yeah and that's like the best thing you could do for public health not one or the other and so yeah just the kind of zero-sum thinking that that you know uh, that's so pervasive and so dangerous, but also then, then it leaves us like fighting for, for the bare minimum. Um, and again, I think the value of the kind of abolitionist approach is, is, is refusing the bare minimum, um, and right. like actually asking for what we really need. Um, but I think the kind of capacities to, to do that work and the infrastructure to do that work, uh, you know, is not, is not as robust as it was in the early days of the pandemic. But also recognize, I mean, I think the value of that approach is that unlike the, I think, 20th century liberal approach to public policy, which is, you know, you 
use sympathy uh, for unforeseen uh, mm-hmm. events or emergencies They'll as a way of justifying own. public policy. Here you say, look, this is a system that was already by its... Dis- this. So we're, the, the problem here is not that this is like relief from some emergency. The system that needs to uh, change, the system that needs to be abolished, is the thing that helped produce the emergency. Yeah. So it's not exactly. this temporary kind of relief thing that ends when the emergency ends. It's the thing is this created uh, the crisis or, exactly. and, and certainly helped to make the crisis worse than it otherwise would have been. Exactly. And I think part of the thing too, is that because of the way these locales are, are, you know, engineered, right. The perspectives of people who actually like have to live inside of these facilities are often like very easily overlooked. I mean, this was the entire strategy in the United States for many years. There were things called ugly laws where you couldn't be like visibly disabled in public. And there were laws against vagrancy and begging more than anything else. And so the the sort of idea was that really like it was OK to sort of exist as one of these people, but that we really didn't want to like have to like see people that made us visually uncomfortable. Right. As right. part of the member of the body politic. And like in very much the same way, when people are taken to prison, like the intent is to invisibilize those people. It's to like discount their perspectives. It's to like stigmatize their advocacy and their perspectives and their political beliefs. And it like not only takes away their freedom, but like literally makes them, um, you know, makes any communication that they have with anyone completely surveilled and sort of subject to mediation by the state. And it's yeah. an incredibly powerful force. But, you know, as as you mentioned early on at the top, like you you do have friends who are inside right now. You have been in contact with them and you have a statement from your friend Stevie that uh, I was wondering if you'd be down to read and sort of explain and give sort of a little context for this. Yeah, thanks for that. I, you know, I think one um, one of the things that's so concerning about the fact that, you know, we've gone from this moment where like the New York Times and all these other places were like at least sort of starting to recognize or at least give voice to people who did recognize the dangers that that carceral systems posed uh, in a pandemic to now just going back to the usual. (laughs) Prisons are bad. The prisons are for bad people. And so we just shouldn't talk about them. Um, (laughs) So, uh, and, but, but of course the pandemic still rages within these institutions as it does everywhere. And so what that means is that the kind of pandemic management strategies that, prison systems have un, unraveled or, un, you know, ha, ha, the, the pandemic management strategies that prison systems are using are being entrenched, right? It's that classic state of exception becomes the, <laughs> becomes the norm mm-hmm. um, while, while attention moves on. So that means, you know, visits in many places either aren't happening or are only happening remotely. You know, there's not uh, educational programming. There's like, the, there's not any of the things or, or there's not many of the things that made life bearable for people who are incarcerated, combined with an increase in censorship, isolation, um, you know, people still being attacked and, and sprayed with pepper spray for disobedience um, in, in the middle of a respiratory virus. Um, and so, so all of the, like the censorship, like pe- people, you know, mail being censored, there's been this whole move before the pandemic that's accelerated under the pandemic to 
you know, not have people get mail directly and they need to buy a tablet and it can only come electronically. And, you know, it's, there's just, uh, and they can't get physical books. They can only get them on tablets. You know, this varies from state to state, but you just see a lot of um, censorship and isolation and abuse that has uh, predates the pandemic, but has been vastly exacerbated in the pandemic that, that has largely escaped a lot of public attention. Um, and, and I think it's very concerning that, that this is becoming the new normal where people have far less than the already limited contact with the outside that they once had um, while abuse continues. And so this is um, a letter from uh, Stevie Wilson, who is incarcerated in Pennsylvania. Um, and if folks are interested in him, they can check out uh, a project that he's been involved with, uh, so abolitionist study group that he's been running mm -hmm. inside a prison. Uh, so there's a website for abolitioniststudy.wordpress.com. Um, and through some supporters, he tweets at agitate organize, one word. Um, so this is a letter he sent me uh, January 26, uh, 2022. Uh, 2022. As we all continue to struggle with COVID, it is important that people out there become and stay aware of what measures the departments of corrections around the country are implementing to protect imprisoned folks. Do not depend upon news clips and press releases. Get connected to people inside. It is the only way you will really know what is happening or not happening behind these walls. In Pennsylvania, we are still dealing with recalcitrant officers and their union. They have rejected every health and safety measure the administration puts forth. From masking to vaccination, they refuse to get on board. This puts every prisoner in harm's way. The only avenue for COVID to enter the prisons is through the DOC employees. Recently, we received a memo from Acting Secretary of Corrections, George Little, in which he acknowledges that we are experiencing pre-vaccine levels of infection behind the walls. How? The overwhelming majority of Pennsylvania prisoners are vaccinated, and many have taken the booster. The employees of the DOC are the ones refusing vaccination and masking. We need the public to know that the DOC has a legal obligation to protect us from COVID. Prisoners have died. The DOC is obligated to take whatever steps needed to keep us safe. Instead, it continues to compromise with the officers' union and put prisoners in danger. Currently, they can work behind the walls unvaccinated as long as they do a temperature check upon entry to the prison. How is that protecting us? They could be asymptomatic. As a matter of fact, we know that they have infected many prisoners while being asymptomatic. This is how we are seeing pre-vaccination numbers. We need the public to pressure the DOC to take real steps to protect prisoners. We need the public to pressure the DOC and the governor to release people because they won't take steps to protect us. Always Stevie. Well said. Yeah. And I'll just add that a lot of the dynamics that he's saying are here in Washington. And yeah. um, we are just about to, to print a series of letters on the Washington Prison History Project, waprisonhistory.org, from people inside prison describing uh, very similar dynamics. And, and I think wherever you are, uh, if you talk to people who are incarcerated in your state and you talk to the folks doing the on the ground organizing, you'll, you'll hear the exact same kinds of things yeah. going on. Because it's, you know, it might not be easy to see from like, you know, combing through the New York Times, as we're saying, but there is a way to, to actually like get eyes on what's going on. And I think if you're, you know, what I'd like to see from folks is like, if you are advocating for like COVID and PIs, you need to really also be thinking of incarcerated people when you're trying to like make your demands. And I think also like, it shows the value of not compromising because there are certain moments, right, where reformism 
fuels situations like mass incarceration for decades, right? Allowing it to get so bad that when we hit the like the context of the the crisis that we're in now, right, it becomes absolutely just magnitudes more brutal than you could have ever imagined it being after like just the history of how brutal this has already been. Exactly. Well, I, Dan, I really, really appreciate um, you coming on today and sitting down to talk with us. Yeah, and, thank you. Um, yeah, thank great. you for sharing this from Stevie and thank you to Stevie, obviously, as well. Yeah, thank you all for having us and, and having me and for giving... Um, sorry, let me do that again. Thank you all for having me. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate the opportunity to share Stevie's words as well. And if uh, people want to follow you online, uh, your Twitter handle is... Is um, at D-N-B-R-G-R. Well, Dan, thank you so much. I think we'll leave it there for today. Um, as always, you can support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. We do two episodes a week. And for patrons, we will catch you Monday in the patron feed. For everyone else, we will see you late next week. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
Thank you.